From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. Today, Tunisian President Gais Saeed dissolved the parliament after parliament members challenged the autocratic powers he has exercised since his self-coup last July. On Wednesday, lawmakers held an online meeting defying Mr. Saeed's warning that the session was illegal and a majority voted against his power grab, which they said violated the country's constitution. Elected in a landslide in 2019, the president has been ruling by decree since July of last year, jailing opponents, suspending parts of the constitution, dismissing the Supreme Judicial Council, and restricting press freedom. Khalil Bendib spoke with our Tunisian correspondent Mohamed Hammami about the current political situation in Tunis. Mohamed Hammami is an independent researcher and analyst. Mohamed Dia Hammami, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's always good to have you with us. Thank you, Khalil. It's always a pleasure to be here. Mohamed, last July, Tunisian President Qais Saied, who was elected democratically two years previous in, uh, in 2019, suspended parliament and sacked the prime minister before further expanding his legislative and executive powers and suspending some parts of the constitution. The one important area of government he had not canceled was the country's independent judiciary. However, since you and I last talked about three months ago, President Qais proceeded to complete his takeover by dissolving this last remaining institutional check on his actions and by appointing his own temporary top judicial council. He says that he's reforming the council, not dissolving it. What was his rationale for doing this? Well, so far he did not explicitly explain why he decided to dissolve the Supreme Judicial Council. For people who are not familiar with the way Tunisian politics function, the Supreme Judicial Council was elected by legal professionals, judges, lawyers, uh, attorneys, bailiffs, and it even includes law professors from different degrees. So some people claim, or people in his entourage claim, that the previous Supreme Judicial Council was corrupt. It was close to what they call now the old regime, meaning people who were who belong to political parties, whether they're from the left or the right or Islamist or whatever, meaning people who were in power before July 25th, 2021. Uh, but from the procedure, from the way the Supreme Judicial Council is formed, we know that it could have not been really captured by, by Anahda, as some people claim, which is the Islamist party. Judges are embedded in a political environment because they represent a part of the country's elite. And in Tunisia, only 10% of the population got degrees from college. So it's totally normal to find that judges know each other or they've been together when they were in school and then to have different political ideologies than them. But Saeed made people think, or his supporters at least, and his allies made people think that the Supreme Judicial Council is too political and is corrupt and we need to get rid of it 
in the same way we get rid of everything else. So there have been large demonstrations in reaction to the president's latest move. Tell us what is the mood in the country eight months after uh, Syed's undeclared coup and whether more and more people are losing faith with the president's project. So I think there is some sort of fatigue, general fatigue on both sides, people who are supportive of Syed and people who are opposed to Syed. So in terms of mobilization contestation, the size of protests who are organized by Nahda's party and its allies or by Bahda Said and his allies, the size is shrinking. So the last protest, I think the size of the anti Said protest was around 1,800 people, which is pretty small, I would say. Although usually in Tunisia, we don't really have really big protests in the way you would see them in other countries. So that's at the level of social contestation, mobilization, or political contestation. But at the same time, people feel also tired psychologically. And the tensions are rising because the political situation is getting bad and the economic situation is getting worse. And we don't really know where things are heading. The president has full authority over the country. He, as you explained, he took control of the three branches of the government already, but is not really making any progress when it comes to fixing the economy or reforming the political institutions or responding to people's expectations. Some people think that he is really obsessed with his political project, and that's why he is uh, not focusing on the economy. But people are, I think, less and less willing to wait. And we've been hearing key political actors, whether from uh, leading political parties or from the strong labor union, UGTT, complaining about the general atmosphere in which the country is right now and referring to how psychologically it become uh, really painful to wait for the president to publish a video every once in a while and inform us that he is trying to change the constitution or do things that don't have anything to do with the general economic situation or with people's expectations. So he has promised to reform the Constitution and put those reforms to a vote. What are some of the changes he wants to affect, and how will these improve the lot of the average Tunisian, according to him? Well, regarding the Constitution, we heard from his supporters. He didn't really tell us what he was planning to do, but we heard from his supporters that he would like to implement the form of democracy that is based on election of local councils and regional councils from which members of the national legislative would be randomly selected. And I think that forming a national legislative without going through a party-based direct national elections is the solution. So his two components of his political party, of his political projects are a democracy without a political party and a democracy without direct 
legislative elections. And added to that, a system where the president has the monopoly of executive powers and where the prime minister does not have as much powers as the previous prime minister who were in office during the last decade. So overall, I would say these are the main components of his political project. So a referendum on the constitutional reforms, which uh, Saeed hopes will bolster his authority, is scheduled for July, exactly a year after his power grab, and a parliamentary election scheduled for December. In other countries, this has been like a classic delaying tactic uh, used by authoritarian regimes throughout the world. Behind these plans, these promises, what do you think his overall strategy really might be? So as you said, this is a classic. His strategy is very similar to Fujimori in Peru in, in the early 90s. Do a self-coup, take control of the judicial and the, the legislative branch of the government, and then go step by step through a national consultation to legitimize his next move, which is a constitutional reform. But he still has to write this new constitution. And so far, we didn't really see anything done. And then uh, referendum, and finally, it ends up with a subservient parliament, weak, fragmented, that will be under the control of an executive branch of the government, not independent from it, under the control of the president. It's a scenario that we previously saw in other countries. However, in the case of Said, I do not think that he has any actual alternative plan aside from changing the constitution. He was a teacher in the university, teacher of uh, constitutional law. He spent his entire life talking about how we need to change constitutions and promoting some unconventional ideas. So, so far, most people in Tunisia really think that, that that's his main plan. We, we know that on the economic side, he's been changing his discourse. Before the election, he was kind of opposed to neoliberal policies of the World Bank and the IMF implemented during the structural adjustment programs in the 1960s, opposed to highly problematic free trade agreement with the European Union. But recently we saw him switching progressively and preparing the political environment to go and, and sign a new deal with the IMF and deepen the economic ties with the EU. So he's just taking what is on the table, what is offered by the usual international players. He's not really trying to come up with something new. Although he recently issued a decree that allows the creation of what he calls the popular companies, which is companies that will be created through citizen initiatives where every inhabitant of a small locality would have the right to get one share. But people are highly skeptical of the impact of this kind of bottom-up state-sponsored entrepreneurship law. We don't really think that it will solve and will respond to the needs of the Tunisian economy in terms of job creation or or reserve of foreign currency or reform of the state-owned companies that are going through really difficult situation. So I don't really think he has a plan aside from 
just attacking his opponents and trying to make constitutional reforms. So he seems to have a strong instinct for decentralization, and that somehow that will solve a lot of problems. I wouldn't call that decentralization because he wants to even centralize more the, the executive branch of the government. In decentralization, you would allow localities to have more power. Uh, you increase the role of the local government. Even here in the U.S., I don't know, like the police would be under authority of local government. He's not planning to do anything like that. All what he wants to do is to create some sort of indirect election, and he thinks that it would increase the, the demographic representativity of the legislative branch of the government. But aside from the transformation in the legislative branch of the government, he really wants to concentrate power at the level of the presidency, not even at the level of the prime minister. So that's why I wouldn't call it decentralization. Tunisia, as you just mentioned, and the International Monetary Fund are in talks with an eye on, on a potential multi-billion dollar rescue deal for Tunisia's economy, which is plagued by recession after the COVID crisis, public debt, inflation, and unemployment. The IMF is demanding, quote, deep reforms <laughs> and public spending cuts. This in a country where so many are already struggling to make ends meet. Supposing the medicine isn't worse than the disease, what are some of the painful reforms that the IMF are trying to impose that supposedly would help uh, the people of Tunisia? Well, we don't actually know. Usually in a more open democratic setting, this kind of information would be leaked to the media. I remember back in 2014, I was working at Nawet and we published the actual letter that was drafted by the government before sending it to the IMF, detailing the pro what they were planning to do. Or sometimes ministers or get invited to the General Assembly and questioned by MPs. But in this kind of setting, the information is tightly controlled. The few information that we have come from the union, the UGTT, whose leader had a recent meeting with the IMF. We know from the rhetoric and of UGTT's leaders that it seems to be that it's the usual reform, meaning privatization of state-owned companies, cuts in salaries of the public sector, shrinking of the public sector, the usual Washington consensus, neoliberal reforms. Well, hiring freezes happened already. We've been hiring, freezing hiring for years. I don't think hiring freezes a new policy because we've been implementing this for, for years and it's not working. In fact, it's preventing the government from hiring young, new, fresh people with new ideas who may help the government to modernize public services. Well, actually, no. Since we started working with the IMF, the government had to stop hiring. I mean, they hire ex really exceptionally under social pressure. Right now, they are trying to get into things that are more uh, harmful and, and really deeper will be about probably privatization of big state-owned companies. And of course, I mean, I can't speculate, but based on previous experiences of the IMF in other countries or in Tunisia, these would be only speculation simply because the government did not publish any 
official and reliable information about what they're planning to do. In fact, what Saeed has been doing is we've been trying to present the prime minister appointed Najla Boudin as the one who is in charge of the economic reform. So he's putting her at the front and every once in a while in the presidency will publish a statement where they will be a little bit critical of the IMF uh, policies and emphasizing that it's the prime minister who is in charge of the negotiation. So Saeed does not meet directly with IMF representative, but it's instead the prime minister. And it's a kind of way by creating this kind of buffer between him and the IMF. He thinks that politically, when the reforms will be implemented, he would not be held responsible for the choices that are currently made. And UGTT is aware of that. The Labour Union is aware of that. The Secretary General, Nordin Tabubi, recently addressed the president in public and he told him, you are the one who is elected. You are the one who should talk with us, not the prime minister who was appointed recently and does not have a margin of maneuver and cannot really discuss with us in the same way you would do. So we're talking about the usual austerity policies that are pushed by the IMF and are so unpopular with people for good reason. Yes, exactly. Obviously, yes. But but usually, I would say Tunisia started its first IMF program in uh, 2013. And since then, we've been implementing austerity policies that made the situation even worse. So now we are probably about to implement the most harmful policies ever or the most socially unacceptable ever since 2013. So the UGTT the country's powerful labor union, which claims a membership of more than a million in a country of 12 million people, it says that it must be included in talks over political and economic reforms called for by the IMF. Supposing that UGTT is included in this debate, absent a clear economic policy by the government, how would it propose to solve this dilemma that Tunisia is facing? That on the one hand, they need support from the IMF. On the other hand, they don't want to sacrifice the minimal public spending that Tunisia is enjoying or relying on. IMF is already somehow included in the negotiation. Before the coup happened, before Qais Saeed took control of the uh, legislative and judiciary branch of the government, there were early negotiations with the IMF. And since then, since I think early 2021, the IMF put the approval of UGT as a condition to the loan because he, they know that even if the government accepts the reform, they can only be implemented if UGTT doesn't resist. But what happened now is that UGTT is not willing to be held responsible for side's decisions. So what they are calling for is solving quickly the political situation by dissolving the parliament officially instead of suspending it, organizing early legislative elections to somehow share the political burden. And then we would implement the economic reforms. Usually is in fact, today, I think, they, as we are recording, we are on the 29th March, the Labor Union or the branch of the Labor Union that covered the entire public sector called for a nationwide general strike in reaction to the IMF conditions to express their rejection of the IMF conditions. And 
Nordin Tabubi, the Secretary General, said that they are even willing and considering organizing what he called a political strike in order to pressure the government to pressure Saeed specifically to make concessions and to re-establish democratic institutions, more specifically the parliament. He didn't talk about the judiciary, but once you bring back the parliament, maybe we'll be able to, to bring back the judiciary. So now UGT is progressively pushing for political change in order to be able to share the burden of the economic reforms with other political actors. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated the plight of countries that depend on energy and grain imports. What is Tunisia's position vis-à-vis the conflict in Ukraine, and how badly does it stand to suffer from disruptions in the international grain and energy market? So Tunisia is a big importer of grain, mainly wheat, from Ukraine and Russia, both. Unfortunately, the government, as many other governments, didn't see the war coming and didn't manage to find alternative sources of supply before end of February 2022. So it had a direct impact on the local market that was already in distress. In fact, we saw reports on problems of supply of bread all over the country and in rationing of bread since late January, early February, which is a month before the war started. Things now are getting worse, but the government is, I think, getting ready for Ramadan, which is about to start soon. So it's a period of time during which the demand on food usually increases. We don't know if they are actually ready. Officially, the Ministry of Commerce said they are ready and there are no problems. Uh, In fact, they've been denying even the problems of supply that I mentioned earlier, both in the local and international media. The scarcity of bread has been observed by so many journalists and, and been critiqued by many political actors in the union. So it's not really clear, again, if the government is actually ready. Ramadan would be the test, and we'll see. You know, Tunisia is right next door to my area of Algeria, where my family comes from. And my family on both sides are wheat growers. We have this monoculture in Setif that has been there since the time of the Romans, and we used to be Rome's breadbasket. I'm wondering what proportion of Tunisia's consumption of wheat comes from Tunisia. I'm sure there must be some wheat grown next door to where I come from. Yes, exactly. So there is the same narrative about the history of wheat production in Tunisia, even when it comes to its relationship with Rome. And... But I think, I don't recall the numbers right now. What I know is that more than 60% of the imported wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine. I remember, I think, the numbers in terms of imports. I think we're around 200 million, I think, of imports of wheat, but only 200 million of exports to Libya. Libya is the main market of export for Tunisian wheat. 
we're not self-sufficient for sure. I think this is all what I can say. I don't really remember the numbers. Yeah, it's just that the whole North Africa, from Egypt all the way to Morocco, we're huge wheat consumers. That's our staple. We, we don't depend so much on rice or anything else or corn or any of those other staples and like other continents. No matter how much we produce, we, we just don't produce enough because we eat bread, we eat couscous, we eat spaghetti, we eat everything that has wheat in it. We're huge consumers. And this is a big crisis for North Africa. All of a sudden, the imports being cut off or slowed to a trickle is a huge issue. Exactly. But also, the other reason why we, we eat a lot of wheat-based food is because historically provided the necessary amount of calories that people need to work in manual labor. Even though it's unhealthy, it leads to problems of obesity in the last two decades or three decades. It is a part of our tradition, yes, to eat couscous. But the reason why we eat a lot of uh, bread is because it's subsidized uh, and it's cheap. People who, who have a higher income eat much less bread, uh, can afford buying vegetables, while low-income people are actually having a hard time buying vegetables. A anything else? Exactly, exactly. Anything else, exactly. I remember seeing in Algiers, seeing laborers, and that's what they ate. They had these big chunks of bread with maybe a little bit of cheese or sardine or something. But it was mostly a bread diet. And it didn't look bad to me because I'm also addicted to wheat. I don't know if you've heard the, this old joke that, you know, where do you draw the line between the Middle East and North Africa? Where does North Africa end and Middle East begin? And they say where couscous ends <laughs> and rice begins. That's so. It's a. It would be somewhere through uh, Libya or Egypt. Yeah, I, I don't think they do. They don't have. Do they have couscous in Egypt? No, they don't have couscous. No, they don't know what couscous is. No, they don't. Yeah. So that's where the Middle East begins, I guess. <laughs> exactly. How about the prices of fossil fuels? How is that affecting, or will it affect Tunisia? this big spike? So the big spikes are absorbed by the subsidies budget. The government is increasing the price of fuel progressively. Actually, they started increasing by the beginning of the year before the war started. The main problem is that the national budget of 2022 is based on the hypothesis that the price of fuel would be around $75 a barrel, way far from that. So the cost right now is covered by a reallocation of other expenses for the fuel subsidies. I don't think the increases that we'll see throughout the year, this progressive or previously planned increase, will absorb the prices, the, the sudden rise of prices uh, we're seeing in the international market, but it also for sure put a burden on the available amount of foreign currency we have. Since Tunisia have been downgraded twice since July 25th and I think three times since last summer, the access to international market is becoming almost impossible. And since the IMF and EU macroeconomic aid, or that's how they call it, 
is conditioned by political decisions that Saudi is not willing to do. The multilateral loans are not an option anymore. And the other sources usually in this kind of situation, Gulf countries, bilateral loans, but none of the Gulf countries is willing to help Saeed because he's not really an ally, he's not reliable, they don't even know if it would be power for given the other year, so they're not willing to invest in improving the ties with him. So Tunisia has right now a huge problem of access to foreign reserves and the rise of prices of oil is uh, eroding the few amount of foreign currency reserve we have. I would like to end with this interesting story out of your country, Tunisia, and sort of a positive, hopeful one (laughs) for a change. An interesting story that came out of Tunisia the past few months is that of a successful grassroots effort to redirect more than 200 containers of household refuse that were imported by a private company from Italy and that for some complicity, some local complicity in, in Tunisia was admitted, but flagged by local activists. And eventually that trash, that garbage, that was shipped illegally to Tunisia was finally sent back to Italy. Tell us a little bit about this story and and is this sort of thing commonplace, you know, the north northern countries sending their trash to the south as far as Tunisia is concerned? Yeah, it's not really common. I think the reason why it became a huge polemic in the country and even in Italian media because this is seems to be unprecedented. Yes, local activists and environmental organizations played a huge role, but I wouldn't say it's only a grassroots reaction because we know that members of the parliament, suspended parliament, played a very important role in defending the case of Tunisia in Italy. In fact, I'm talking here specifically about members of the Tunisian parliament representing the Tunisian diaspora in Italy who got to talk to lawyers in Italy because a big part of the case is a legal case that local environmental organization in Tunisia could not handle without support from local actors. So I think it's a huge victory. Yes, it creates a very important legal precedent. So hopefully we won't see Italy sending us their toxic waste anymore. I hope so. And uh, it's great that we have such a reactive and aware network of local organizations who know how to navigate both the systems in Tunisia and Italy to get allies and to get support and to push against these private actors. I hope we manage to preserve this tradition that was built mostly during the last 10 years. Mohammad Hammami is an independent researcher and analyst. He spoke with Khalil Bendi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Mm-hmm.